Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, page 1157. 1157 is where you find Paul's letter to the Galatians, the fifth chapter. We're going to ask the Lord for a blessing on this word that we're going to read. It's from verse 16 to verse 26, just at the bottom of 1157 and then to the end of the chapter. Let's come before the Lord and ask for his blessing upon this word. Shall we pray? Merciful God and Heavenly Father, with your word open before us, We see the ink on the page. We can discern the letters, the words, the phrases, the ideas. But only you can make them living. Only you can make them powerful. Only you can penetrate the hardness of our hearts with them so that they are planted so deep within that they shape our very thoughts, emotions, activities, that they draw forth from us that faith, that trust, that your Spirit works in those who are born again. Lord, we pray. As we now open this word, as we now read these words, speak to us through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Galatians 5, at verse 16, hear the word of God. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That's for the reading of God's holy word. This also serves as our text this morning. It's the verses 16 through 26 of Galatians 5. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, we are returning to our study of Galatians to finish it off in anticipation or we'll finish it off, and then we will uh, begin a a Lent series, Lord willing, uh, as we anticipate Easter, which is, I believe, the second Sunday, second Sunday of of April. April 9th is Easter this year, so uh, we're going to uh, study some aspect of God's Word that prepares us for the death of Jesus Christ on Good Friday and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday. Uh, But before then, We'll finish our series of sermons on Galatians as we draw this book to a close. And because it's been a while since we were in Galatians, it seemed good to just take a moment to remind ourselves what's going on in this book uh, and why it is that the apostle speaks into or speaks the word that he does in our text. Uh, and it's, 
I think um, important to remember that what Paul's dealing with in the book of Galatians uh, is a very, very common, very ordinary aspect of the Christian experience. Uh, it certainly uh, was in the churches of Galatia where Paul had been used by the Lord to plant churches to Jesus Christ. They had uh, heard the gospel. They were Gentile churches. They'd heard the gospel from him. They came to faith in Jesus Christ. It was a, an amazing expression of God's saving work in those days. And then after a time, as was Paul's ministry, he moved on to, to a new place, to a new part of the Roman Empire to bring the gospel. Places where the gospel hadn't been before. He would leave pastors behind uh, in order to uh, continue to build up the church, but, but his ministry was to, to bring the gospel to all of the Gentile world as much as possible. Uh, and after he left, uh, so often uh, the devil would send uh, false teachers in behind him. Uh, there are those who, who argue, and I think somewhat persuasively, in fact, that this is the very thorn in the flesh of which Paul speaks uh, in Second Corinthians, uh, that this uh, persistent um, uh, twisting of the gospel, spreading of heresy was what so burdened Paul, because it happened with such great regularity. Uh, Paul would bring the good news of the gospel, would, would share the faith, and then so, so quickly thereafter, the devil would send a liar, a, a heretic behind him to say to the church, well, you, you know, Paul's not bad. It's a pretty good start, but he's, he hasn't told you the whole truth. Let me tell you the whole truth. And in this case, in the Galatians situation, uh, it was Judaizers, we think. It was Judaizers who had come, and, and what they were saying was, well, yes, Jesus, good start, good start for sure. But don't forget circumcision, don't forget uh, ho holy days, don't forget dietary rules. Uh, that is to say, uh, it's good that you, that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but if you don't live the right way, if you don't do the right things, then you won't be saved. And, then, and, and, and that's, a, that's a challenge for the church, not only in Galatia, but throughout the history of the church. We've noted that in the past as well. You think of our Canons of Dort written for the very same reason in response to the very same lie. So that the church has dealt with this throughout her history. And indeed, there's something so very instinctive and natural about this lie that we all deal with it on some level. We all find ourselves rather quickly believing that our standing before God is at least in part due to our having done good works. Maybe that's even why we came to church today. We came to church today because we said, I have to do it. If, if I don't do it, God will get angry with me. I don't want God angry with me. I'm going to do good because I want God to be happy with me. Sometimes we struggle with the dark side of that when trials come, when sorrows come. And we say to ourselves, no, what, is God, what have I done to make God angry? What have I done to deserve this judgment? God, surely I've done everything right, we think. We've done enough anyway to make God happy. It's a very instinctive thing to believe that our relationship with God is at least in part a result of our own good works. And Paul says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. That is not the gospel at all. In fact, that is a false gospel. And if anyone preaches, him, let, preaches it, let him be condemned. That's not what the gospel teaches. The gospel doesn't teach that you begin by grace and you finish by works. No, the gospel is grace from beginning to end. What a comfort that is, what a powerful encouragement that is to all of us. Because the truth is, the devil knows that if he can get you living self-righteously, he can also discourage and depress you. 
Because the truth is none of us can live up to the expectation of God's law. None of us can do what is required. And the harder we try, the more dark our hearts get, the more depressed our spirits get, the more discouraged we become. Because we think we have to. We think that if we don't, we're not saved. And so we suffer a great deal. Now, of course, sometimes because of that, we go into the other, uh, the opposite problem, the opposite um, uh, error. Uh, we might not be so works righteous. Sometimes we have this struggle with dealing or in dealing with antinomianism, which is a fancy, just fancy way of saying without a law. That is, that, that the Christian life becomes this um, uh, unstructured, undefined, undirected reality. Do whatever you want. Live however you wish. As long as you can say, I believe in Jesus. As long as you can say, you have a relationship with God. That's all that matters. You don't have to obey the rules. There are no rules to the Christian life. That's works righteousness. We don't believe that. So if you uh, make mistakes, well, it happens. Nobody's perfect. Uh, if If you do grievous and terrible things, well, who among us can throw the first stone? Uh, as long as you can uh, uh, spell the name Jesus, you, you are probably going to be saved. And, and that, of course, is problematic. We, we understand that instinctively. We realize that can't be right. And it also leads to a very dark and, and dismal place that ultimately leaves us with no assurance, no peace, no sense of God's grace at work within our lives. We find ourselves uncertain and, and doubting. And the devil loves it when we doubt so we don't want to fall into the error of works righteousness. We don't want to follow in, fall into the error of antinomianism. We want to always remain focused on the gospel. Now that's Paul's point in the book of Galatians. But what does that mean then for our Christian living? That's where Paul is now in his uh, letter. That's where Paul has gotten to in chapter 5. He's encouraging us in the way that we should live as Christians. He's not going to slide into works righteousness. He's not going to slide into antinomianism. He's going to give to us a radically distinct, a very unique Christian perspective on what it means to live. And that's clearly seen in the verses 16 through 26 of Galatians 5. A text that starts, But I say, walk by the Spirit. But I say, Paul writes, meaning... Not this way, not uh, in the way that the uh, heretics, the false teachers have taught you, and certainly not in the way of tension, of grief. In the verses before this, he talked about biting and devouring one another. Don't live that way. That's not the way to live, says Paul. But in this way, this is the way you walk by the Spirit. That, that language of walking is a favorite one of Paul's to describe the Christian life. He, he, that's, that's, that's the key to our understanding. Paul's going to tell us now how to live, the practical consequences, the practical outworking of Christian living. It's not just something we believe, not just a truth that we confess. It's a lifestyle. And what we're to do, says Paul, is to work to walk by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit means listening to the Spirit. It means Uh, uh, following the Spirit, imitating the Spirit, submitting to the Spirit, trusting the Spirit, setting our path after the Spirit's path. That is that we say, I'm not following my own desires, my own instincts, my own attitudes. I'm going to follow Him. I'm going to walk by the Spirit. 
And this dependence upon the Holy Spirit radically alters, radically, the word radical has at its, at its root, the word root. It's, it's the Latin word for root. It means that a radically altered lifestyle is a lifestyle altered from the very root of our existence, from the very depths of who we are, all the way through every aspect. It's not just a small change. It's not just a Sunday change. It's a change of your perspective, a change of your thinking, a change of your speaking, a change of your serving, a change of your relationships, a change of your worship. Everything is altered when you walk by the Spirit, when you walk in a way that keeps us from gratifying the desires of the flesh. That's what he says. You will not gratify. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That old nature, that sinful way of living, the way that the law condemns. When you walk by the Spirit, you will not, you will not feed that. You will not nourish that. You will not give it joy. You will not gratify the desires the desires of our flesh, our old nature, our sinful nature, they want to be satisfied. They want to be happy. They want to be fed. When you walk by the Spirit, says Paul, you won't feed that beast. You won't feed that darkness. You will starve it. That, want, that, that darkness that wants to keep you from doing what you want to do. For the desires, he says, of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The things you want to do, says Paul. If you've been truly redeemed, if Christ genuinely dwells in your heart, if the Spirit has taken up residence within you and given you a new heart, a new spirit, a new mind, then you will want to do good. Isn't that Paul's words? Also in Romans 7, we often quote those words to describe the fact that we can't live up to God's commands. The good that I want to do, I do not do. And the evil that I don't want to do, that I do. Wretched man that I am. But don't miss that for Paul, there is a genuine desire to do good. The good that I want to do. Oh yes, I want to do good, says Paul, because I'm alive in Jesus Christ. Paul says the believer, the redeemed, the born again no longer want to live in the foolishness and the darkness of this world. They want to live for Jesus. Even though as sinners we struggle with that. We, we war. That's, that's Paul's words, isn't it? The, the desires of the flesh are opposed to each other to keep us from doing what we want. There is this tension, there is this struggle in all of our lives, in the lives of every genuine believer, of the holiest of believers. There remains this persistent burden, this persistent trial. We desire to live for the Lord, but we so quickly fall into sin. How then can we find any joy in the Christian life? Ah, says Paul, you see, that's why you have to keep in step with the Spirit, because when you live by the Spirit, you are free from the condemnation of the law. You see, Paul gives to us a reason to get up in the morning knowing that we will face the trial. So much of the Christian experience is here described, isn't it, as a battle between good and evil, between right and wrong, between what our flesh wants and what our love for Jesus wants. Surely you've experienced this. Maybe this morning even. 
Maybe this morning your alarm went off and you thought, oh, do I have to go to church? Your flesh strove against your redeemed desire to glorify God for what He's done. Maybe in this past week you were sitting quietly somewhere on the job site, who knows, in your room, who knows, somewhere, and your phone was in your hand, and into your heart came the desire to see something you shouldn't, to do something you shouldn't, and you fought against it. Maybe you even lost that fight. You knew it was wrong. You understood that you shouldn't do this, but there you were battling with this desire of the flesh. Have you never ever wanted to say something You could, in an argument with a loved one, usually with the person closest to you, you hear this cutting word come through your brain and you know it's headed to your mouth and you know it's wrong and you don't want to say it. This juicy bit of gossip that you're going to tell about your girlfriend or a friend and you're going to to spread some kind of shameful thing to them. An angry response to someone on the road at work that you know is wrong. And you just can't seem to stop it. Out come those hard words. Have you never felt the doubts, experienced the darkness, known it's not right, but I can't get free? I can't get free. Do you not see that the Christian life is a constant battle, a constant war, engaged in a constant spiritual struggle? And how then are we going to do battle? How then are we going to become victorious in this fight against sin? The answer of the false teachers to the Galatians was, well, you've got to do better. You've got to be harder. You've got to try harder. It's all up to you. You've got to get motivated. You've got you to give yourself greater strength to achieve greater good. You've got to be better. And that sounds so very reasonable. It it echoes and resonates with the message of our world that says if you try hard enough, you can succeed at anything. You're good enough. You're smart enough. And everybody loves you. But it's an empty message. It is a lifeless, powerless message. Indeed, when the Christian life becomes nothing more than do this, don't do that, when it's nothing more than a drill sergeant barking orders at you, You will find yourself inevitably failing because you can't live up to this demand. You will find yourself discouraged, helpless, and hopeless. You are and will always be unequal to such a task. And if that's the way you believe you need to live, you will never be free from your besetting sin and you will never know the joy of the Lord. But into this hopelessness, into this failure, this persistent failure, these lives and years and days and months of constant struggle comes this word from the Apostle Paul, comes this gospel message that he lays at our feet, teaching us a radically different way to see and understand life. For he starts not with you or your strength or your abilities, but with God's grace. The powerful, regenerating presence of the Holy Spirit. He says, you who believe, you who are alive, you who want to serve God, you have been purchased by the Lamb. And then he says, now keep in step with the Spirit. Keep up with Him. It's the word of a a parent 
to a son or daughter, a three or four or five-year-old who are walking with dad. Keep up. Keep up. That means we might have to move our feet a little faster to be sure, but, but our focus is not upon ourselves. It's upon the one we're following. It is focusing on the one who loves us. It's wanting to be with Him. Directing us in the deep grace and the powerful equipping of God Himself. Paul says, focus your hearts. Not on your ability or strength. Not on what you can accomplish, but what God is accomplishing in you. Here Paul does not tell us to look into the mirror and tell ourselves how great we are, pumping up our self-esteem. Instead, he opens up, his word, opens up the Word of God and he shows us the Spirit who refashions lifeless clay into the image of the risen Savior. And he says, God has begun a great work in you. God is doing a glorious, redeeming work in you. God is doing an amazing grace in you. Rejoice in it. Embrace it. Keep in step with it. Such a response, you understand, calls for joy in the deliverance we've been given and strives to embrace it more deeply, express it more fully, and experience it more completely. It's the believer saying, that's exactly what I want. I want more of the Holy Spirit in my life. It's a child who so adores dad and mom that they copy them, mimic them, imitate them. They want to be like mom or dad. And so they do what mom and dad do. Here is a positive approach to Christian spirituality. For it's not... A constant dig deeper, do better, try harder, prove yourself, perfect yourself. I mean, it's not sin's no big deal either. We'll see that in a minute. But Paul knows, as we should know, that we cannot live in ourselves to the glory of God, to the advancement of His kingdom in the way of life. So Paul's encouragement to us is see what your Savior's done. Embrace His grace at work in your life. Rejoice in the evidence of the Spirit's presence no matter how small, no matter how minor it may seem to you. See the life. See the joy. See the power of God at work. Pursue it. Walk in it. Be amazed by it. Rejoice in His working to deliver you. Be amazed that you've been freed in the blood of Jesus. Rejoice in His deliverance for you. Wanting to walk in His footsteps. Be who Christ is remaking you to be. Express your new identity in Christ. This is the way of the believer. It is a way filled with faltering and failing. It is a way filled with tripping up and having to get up again. But it focuses on the Savior and on His Spirit and says, I want to keep up with Him. For there is no greater joy than to live in the power of Christ and in the power of His Spirit. Note that in light of what Paul goes on to say about all of that darkness of sin. He lists for us works of the flesh that are evident. 
He says this is what it means when you're not in Christ. When you're not inspired. When the Spirit isn't dwelling in you. You you have these sins in your life. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's not an exhaustive list. Things like these allows us to add other things to this list. But it is an intriguing list that divides into unique categories, starting with sexual sins. That's where Paul seems always to start, by the way. In these sorts of lists, he so very often begins with sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. You want to understand why our world is so passionately pursuing same-sex attraction, transgenderism, immorality, and all sexual perversions. You want to know why pornography is such a powerful uh, uh, a part of our world's culture and experience? Here's why. Because when you live apart from Jesus, when you refuse to bend the knee in salvation to Je- in service to Jesus Christ, this is what comes out of your wicked heart. Sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. And not just that, there are religious sins that come out too, aren't there? Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, says Paul. These are all religious sins. Idolatry is a rejection of the living God. Sorcery is a replacing the living God with some foolish idea. Enmity is hatred towards God. Here's a perfect description of an atheist. An idol worshiper, for he worships himself. And replaces Christianity with some bizarre religion that he calls atheism. And he does it because he's so very angry with God. I don't believe in God, he says, and I hate Him. Religious sins, religious rejections of God are the consequence of our not being in Christ. Not only do we experience religious sins, we experience social sins. Such is necessarily the case. If you reject God, you will also come into conflict with your neighbor. Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions and divisions. Here you see how very quickly, uh, as our world testifies to us, that sin does not build up. Sin does not unite. It divides. Sin expresses brokenness and rebellion against God. And finally, we find ourselves in the last category. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Things of our own pleasure, of our own happiness. We do these things. We think because they make us happy. We get angry because other people have stuff. We drink in order to experience some measure of joy. We pursue sexual sins in order that we might experience some measure of happiness. This is the promise of sin. But it's a promise that is never paid out. Sin's always against God and against our neighbor. Sin never blesses. Now, we shouldn't misunderstand Paul here. He's not suggesting that everyone who is outside of Christ produces every one of these sins in equal measure. He's not suggesting that we are as bad as we possibly can be. No, that's not the point. But here is certainly a description, a general picture of where sin leads when we're under its dominion. It leads to misery. It leads to isolation, pain, and foolishness. It leads to immaturity. It leads to nothing good. It leads ultimately to damnation. There may be some among us that need to hear this word. 
Maybe some among us who are struggling with some of these things. Maybe with drunkenness. Maybe with envy. Maybe with sexual immorality. There is hope for us. There is hope for us. But that hope is only in Jesus Christ. And you need to hear this word this morning. Because the, the Apostle Paul says this with no uncertainty. I warn you as I warned you before. That those who do these things, do such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. If one of these words describes you today, not your struggle, not your struggle. If you are fighting against, if you are striving, keeping in step with the Spirit, fighting against the lust of the flesh, losing, but still fighting against the flesh, be encouraged. The Lord's at work in you. Rejoice for the Spirit of God has made His dwelling among you. But if this describes you and does not, and you do not fight against it, you do not reject it, if you embrace it, if you pursue it, if you already know that next Friday night you'll be drunk, next Saturday night you'll be drunk, if you know that today you'll go home and, and you'll scroll, scroll, scroll on your phone through porn, if you are not free from this, then I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You need to know There is only life in Jesus Christ. And the life of the Holy Spirit never leads His people in this way. If you sit here and think to yourself, but I can spell the name Jesus. I can say that I believe in Jesus. Then know this, that Jesus never leads those who He redeems in the pathway of these sins. We may not be daily keeping ourselves in step with the Holy Spirit, We may not be perfect in any way with respect to our spirituality. Make no mistake. But we never end up in these places when we submit to the Holy Spirit. Not in a perpetual, persistent, self-defining way. Not in the way that our world does. Think of our world. Sexuality has become the expression of its rebellion against God. A complete rejection of God's claim upon our bodies so that man not only can pursue whatever sexual sin he desires, sleeping around, same-sex attraction, he can identify himself as being free from the Lord's limits. He can say, I'm not a woman, I'm a, or I'm not a man, I'm a woman, or I'm not a woman, I'm a man. Not only does man today reject the living God in his idolatry, he pursues such folly as sorcery. Maybe not sorcery in the absolute sense, but you think of some of the religions, Buddhism and Scientology and and, and all the other that are on offer from our world and, and you see to yourself, no reasonable creature could ever believe this is true. And yet man embraces it as an expression of his hatred toward God. Not only is this religious rejection damaging in his relationship with God, it brings no blessing into his relationship with anyone else. And why is this? Why is our world such a broken, fallen place? Why is our world pursuing such misery so passionately? It is not because apart, or it is rather because apart from Christ, there is no power. Apart from the Holy Spirit's indwelling, this is our lot. That we do these things because apart from Christ, we are sinners is a reality. We are enslaved to sin. We are under the judgment of God. We are burdened as Israel was in Egypt. They didn't have a choice. Not that they would want one. They suffered because they were under the reign of a more powerful enemy than they could ever overcome. But this is all the more reason you understand for us to rejoice 
in the saving work of Jesus Christ. If you are caught in this misery, if the guilt of it, if the shame of it, if the burden of it is gripping your heart, then rejoice today because there is life and hope in Jesus Christ. He can free you by His Spirit. He can enable you to live for Him. You too can walk with the Spirit. You too can walk in the way of faith. Don't believe the lie of the devil who tells you you can sit in church on Sunday and live like the world on Saturday night. Don't believe the lie of the devil that says you can play with fire and not get burned. And don't, as a church community, don't let us sit there and say of of these young people who might be struggling in some of these ways, oh, it's just youthful foolishness. It's, It's... Sowing their wild oats. They'll grow. We all grew out of it. None of us is perfect who can cast the first stone. Or maybe he needs just a good girl. You know what? He needs a good girl and then he'll straighten out. As though a wife were the Savior of his soul, the Redeemer of his eternity. Maybe we think we can get freed from the cruelty of sin by just trying harder, by being better, by doing more. Maybe you think the Apostle Paul is wrong and that you're right. And maybe you don't need the Spirit's presence and power to give you victory over the works of the flesh. But if you here today know the misery of sin, and if you know it's grief that it works in your life, then rejoice because in Jesus Christ you are given the Holy Spirit who is able to put these things to death in you. You will not be perfect, not today, not any day, until the Lord returns or you die and enter into His glory. But you will get better every day as you walk in the footsteps of the Spirit. Indeed, what will He do to you but what He describes here for us in the conclusion of our text? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Here the Apostle says this is the the fruit that the, the, the gardener, Jesus Christ, harvests from His garden. Ah, it's such a good fruit. Delicious in every respect. Good to look at. Good to eat. Satisfying to those who enjoy it. Notice that it is one fruit that the Apostle speaks of. He does not speak of many fruits. He says this is the fruit of the Spirit. That is, you don't get to say, well, I have three out of the seven, so I'm good. No, it's a package deal. You get get them all or you get none. It's fruit, one fruit of the Holy Spirit. And they all find, of course, their greatest expression not in us, Oh no, even our love is not as passionate as it should be. Our patience isn't as long as it ought to be. Our gentleness tends to fall into harshness far too soon. No, the fullness of understanding these words is in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ alone who expresses them perfectly. But know this, know this, that where the Spirit of Christ is developing these qualities in the lives of His people, there is no condemnation. There is no law against these things. Not because you've done enough. Not because you've proven your worth. But because it means you've been redeemed. It means that your debt has been paid. It means that you're alive in Jesus Christ. Indeed, it means that you're a Christian. For this is how Christians live. In the past, we've studied each of these qualities individually. 
And we have noted each time uh, their radical, unique, and distinct quality, that they're not like what you think they are, that love is not the world's love, and gentleness is not the world's gentleness. No, these are not echoes of our world. There are echoes of them in the world, but they are revelations of Jesus Christ. The real thing is ultimately found in Jesus, and by His Holy Spirit is worked in our hearts and lives. And indeed, notice how these qualities are worked in us by the Holy Spirit. That is, they're not something you produce in yourself. They are what is produced in you by grace. And notice as well that the relational qualities are all relational qualities. Loving others. Being patient with others. Being kind to others. Living by the Holy Spirit, you see, encourages, equips, blesses the believer, but but blesses the believer that they may be a blessing to others. That's what the Lord does to us. He he makes us Christ-like, the one who did not come to be served, but to serve. Think of it. The Son of God, who alone could claim the adoration and obedience of every creature on earth, came in the flesh not to be served, but to serve. When you find yourself burdened when you find yourself thinking about I can't serve this person they're just too whatever annoying frustrating discouraging bothersome never forget that Jesus never gave up on you Jesus continued to serve you perfectly and then cry out to Christ cry out for his spirit who gives you these things say Lord in my heart bring about these graces because we don't do these things perfectly do we no of course not But as surely as we are in Christ, as surely as we drink of His fountain of grace, as surely as we find ourselves crying out to the Spirit of Christ for help, as surely as we walk and keep in step in the Spirit, we will grow, we will mature, we will develop. The holiest among us will still only have a small beginning of the requirement of the righteousness required of us. But every day, that plant in the garden of our hearts will become a little bigger, a little more glorious, the, the flower a little more beautiful, the, the fruit a little more ripe, until one day it is plucked by our own Savior, Jesus Christ, as we stand within His presence. This is, this is what we as Christians ought to be encouraged by as we look back upon our lives. As we look back, whether it's been a long time or a short time, we should be able to look back and say, Something's happened to me. Something's changed. I'm different. I'm not the same as I was. And and not just in the emotional sense in terms of the maturation, the the development of life. Everybody does that. But but I'm more selfless. I'm I'm more gentle. I'm more gracious. I, I see the Lord giving me patience that people maybe who knew us 30, 40, 22 years ago say to us, what's happened to you? You've changed. To which we can answer, let me tell you about Jesus Christ and the power of His love. Let me tell you about the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And as we see these signs, again, the smallest of signs. The smallest of signs. As we see these signs, let's rejoice at the grace of God at work within us. Let us not be discouraged at how little progress we've made. Let us be encouraged at how much grace we've been given. Because it demonstrates we are one of the redeemed. 
It means tomorrow will be better than today. It means that we are growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Does this define you? Does this describe you? Is this you? As you look back on your Christian experience, you will see hills and valleys, but do you see a a slow but steady progression in glory? Are you discouraged? Are you down because your life is not the way it should be because it's not the way you want it to be? Then simply cry out to Jesus. Get upon your knees and plead on the basis of His sacrifice for you for the grace necessary to overcome. And then get up off your knees and walk in the Spirit. Walk in the way of the Lord. Be in His Word. Be in prayer. Those are the the two main ways in which the Spirit equips and enables our hearts. Through His Word, He pours out life into us. Think of what the Catechism says about prayer that the, the Lord only gives to those who earnestly desire His grace, the Holy Spirit. We ought to be in prayer. We ought to be in His Word. We ought to be in worship. We ought to be drinking deeply from the grace provided but not so that we can prove our worth, but so that we can rejoice in the experience of His grace. For when we live these ways, it's not to get points with God or our neighbor. It's only to demonstrate that we're alive in Jesus Christ. Each of these qualities described here by Paul directs us in a way that is countercultural, that is against the stream, that is hard to do, that is sacrificial, and is a struggle for us. But when we see them as the expression of the Holy Spirit's presence in our hearts, we will rejoice to see that fruit being born, especially in the tough moments of life. And then we will see that living for the Lord is a joy, that it is an act of thanksgiving, that it is an expression of praise. That that, in the end, is the radical distinction of the Christian life. We don't fall into the error of works righteousness. Oh, we're tempted to. We lean that way. And we don't fall into the error of antinomianism. That's a temptation. That's something we tend to, to want. We, we tend to bounce between these things. Sometimes we, we expect to be perfect. Sometimes we say it doesn't matter what you do at all. And then we say, oh, no, you have to. We bounce. And Paul says, enough. Turn your eyes to Jesus. See what He has done in you and embrace His work of grace within your life. Rejoice, for He has claimed you. Give your life in service to Him. Keep in step with the Spirit. Let's ask Him for that grace in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that there is a better, more excellent way. A way that isn't dependent upon our own strength. A way that isn't careless and pointless, a way that gives us a purpose, a goal that helps us understand what it means, that gives us encouragement and assurance. Indeed, Lord, we confess that when we see the fruit of Your Spirit being born in us, though it may be small, though it may be insignificant in so many respects, though we wish it were more, though we wish our lives were better, when we see that growth, Lord, then we can rejoice. We can rejoice because Your Spirit's at work within us. Who else can make us to be this way. Who else can give us such love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness? Lord, we pray that You would help each one of us to strive after righteousness. Not to prove how good we are, but to show the world how great You are. In Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Amen.